Amen. If you would, open in your Bibles there to Psalm 22. We're going to take a break from Zechariah for today. We Last time we saw Psalm 22, we were going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we just touched on some of the prophecies and how they were fulfilled while Christ was on the cross. But this is an extraordinary psalm. This psalm is not written in the perspective of someone who's at the cross looking up at it. Uh, rather, it is written from the perspective of the one who is hanging on the cross. It's not written from the perspective of the empty tomb and those who go to find that tomb empty. This psalm is written from the perspective of the one who stepped forward in resurrection victory. It's absolutely marvelous. Yes, it'll take us to the cross, and then it takes us with Mary to the garden on the first day of the week, where we will find ourselves freshly comforted with the resurrection of Christ. And so two parts that I want us to see in Psalm 22. Verses 1 through 21, we will see the sufferings of the faithful Christ. So I want you to see particularly how he suffers, but also make note, and we'll point out, how does he strengthen his own faith, even in the midst of suffering? And then from 22 through the end of the chapter, we'll see the glorious uh, worship of the resurrected Christ. This is God's word, starting in verse 1, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and am not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, who made me to trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls Encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared. My tongue sticks to the jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be afar off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but is heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all those who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people not yet born, that he has done it. Amen. Since the reading of God's word. As we consider this first section, the sufferings of the faithful Christ, uh, notice that there's going to be three blocks, right? And there's going to be some verses that are going to deal with the nature of Christ's sufferings, how he suffered, and that section will be followed by another section, and that section will show his faithfulness. Of So when affliction comes, how did he strengthen his soul? Those uh, strengthening passages... You'll, you'll notice they begin this way, yet you are holy, or yet you, O Lord, or but you, O Lord. And so if you will, imagine waves crashing onto the sea, okay? Waves of agony coming down upon Christ, waves of suffering. And as those waves go back out, what you see after the wave moves is his faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ. The, those waves will be pulled back and you'll see the unshakable faith of Christ in the faithfulness of God. Notice as the psalm starts, it doesn't build to a climax. It starts with the very pinnacle of Christ's suffering here. Now, a lot... Lots can and will be said about the sufferings of Christ, the, the physical nature, the nails, the, the horror of Roman torture. But what makes the cross hell is this. 
It's the cry of dereliction from Jesus' lips. Eloi, Eloi, lama shakbathani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, no one has ever lived in the type of darkness to which Christ, our Savior, is plunged at this moment. The full fury of the divine curse falling on his soul. That's what's taking place. The Father draws all attention, all awareness of his fellowship, of his love from Jesus. Jesus is given over to emptiness, abandoned to condemnation, crushed, handed over to the wrath of God that our sin has incurred. Jesus is bearing the condemnation, friends, we deserve. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's what I owe. This is what you owe. This is Christ in our place. Here, friends, this is the cost of what sin is. Christ suffers. Why have you forsaken me? Christ hanging and suffering. You know, if, as we think of Christ suffering in our place, this is the perfect antidote, isn't it? To think, thinking and taking sin lightly is a small thing. It's no small thing to rebel against Almighty God. And so here, as you think of Christ on the cross, suffering the very wrath of God, suffering for our sakes, you hear the perplexity in this moment? Why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? Why am I forsaken? It's not a cry of unbelief, though. It's not a cry of ungodliness at this moment. When he says, my God, my God, this is a cry of faith even in the midst of pain. And what may be more important for you this morning is that when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? He sanctified that question, why? For all of us who find ourselves wrestling with the darkness of pain, with the uh, reality of tragedy, with, with suffering in our own lives, Christ cries out, why? The forsaken Son on the cross, notice, does not forsake the Father. My God, my God, why? He clings to God, and he clings to God who... At that moment, he cannot feel, he cannot see, he doesn't find. There's only darkness. So there's grace for you here. If you find yourself in a place and you're crying out to God and that God doesn't seem to be there. And you don't feel his presence. And you don't feel like he's hearing you. Do you see what Christ does? He does not let go of who God is. He doesn't. He Forsaken though he be, Christ clings to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And notice what it is that sustains his faith. Verses 3 through 5. Jesus recites the faithfulness of God to the fathers. 
Yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and you delivered them. They trusted you and were not put to shame. Christ rehearses God's past grace to his people. And this sustains his faith. It holds it. Even in the midst of this present trial, Jesus remembers how faithful God has been in the past. He remembers God's faithfulness, his unfailing, unrelenting faithfulness in the past to people who did not deserve it. Well, friends, that's a helpful tool to put in your toolbox. Remember God's deeds in the past. Remember how he, how he was faithful, even in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness. When your, when your trials are overwhelming, do what Jesus does. Remember how faithful God is. Remember the grace of God, that he has been faithful he's again and again to the fathers, to, to his people. Throughout all generations, he has been nothing but faithful. That was Christ's method for enduring suffering. That sustains Christ's faith on the cross. He remembered, he preaches to his own soul the faithfulness of God. Do that when suffering comes your way. Verses 6 to 8, here comes another wave. Suffering. Another wave crashing down on them. This time, it's these dehumanizing effects of suffering. Notice Jesus says, I am a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by all mankind. I'm despised by the people. All who see me, they mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him since he delights in him. Friends, do you hear that? I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm despised by the people. He's treated like an animal. He's beneath compassion. He's beneath mercy. He's only good for ridicule. All dignity is stripped away, isn't it? Christ, the suffering Christ, has no dignity here. He is plumbing the very depths of sorrow. Nobody else might know your sadness. No one else, you feel no one else can understand what you've been through, going through. Friends, you cannot go to a pit or to a dark place that Christ hasn't already hit the very bottom of. The furthest horizon of human loss, human pain, human brokenness. Christ has been there. Christ can say, I know. I know. I know. So look at the cross. 
Christ, he is alone. He's despised. He's mocked. Can't, even as you read this, don't you just see the Pharisees standing around the cross, mocking him, hurling the insults out of them? He saved others. Let him save himself. Well, he's trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. He, he delights in him. You just hear the mocking tone. And what's Jesus say? I'm a worm. I'm not a man. He knows, doesn't he? He knows the worst sorrows your heart could ever face. He knows. You, ever, you feel like you don't have anywhere to turn? You feel like that? That no one, you, there's no one to, to go to? There's no one who, who would ever understand? That is not true. You can go to him. Go to him. Look to him. Bring all of your grief to him. Bring all of your cares to him. He knows. He knows what it is. And then the waves go back in verses 9 through 11 as they slide back. You see this solid rock of trust and dependence upon God. It's not shaken. But this time it's not God's past faithfulness. At least not his faithfulness to the fathers. This time it's faithfulness in his own life. But you, who are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there's none to help. He traces, doesn't he, all the ways in which God has been there all along, from the very beginning. God has been his God from the very beginning. I want to say, some of you have that testimony. Uh, you don't remember a time that you didn't believe and trust in the Lord. You don't know a time like that. That's very similar, maybe. You never lived in a life where you were just living in wild rebellion against God. You grew up believing. You grew up trusting. You grew up fleeing sin and despising it. You grew up clinging to Christ and trusting and praying to him. I want to tell you, that is a glorious testimony. Don't ever think, my testimony is lacking because I became a Christian at a young age. This is a glorious testimony, right? You say, I don't remember the day when I became a Christian. That is a glorious testimony, all right? This is the way it should be in Christian homes. That, that I, I, it just seems as if I have always trusted in God. That is the way our children should grow. Loving the Lord, hating sin. They should learn it from their mother's breast. Jesus leans on this testimony to sustain him in suffering. This should, should be. And as you think about your own testimony, is God the center of your testimony? I mean, that's, that's Christ's testimony here. He, he goes back to his own story. He remembers how God has always been there. I would encourage you to do that. Read back through your own life story in your mind. 
But don't make you the main character. Make God the main character. What was God doing? And let that be your testimony. That all this time, he has sustained, he has kept, he has been faithful. Friends, has God been faithful in your life? Has he? I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's me and some other guy back here. But go back, rehearse your story, and make God the main character. And just think of all the ways he's been faithful. Think about that. And then here comes another tidal wave. Verses 12 to 18. It's incredibly accurate, isn't it, of the crucifixion? The soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for his garments. I do want to say, here's a good reason to trust the Bible, right? This is the inspired and errant word of God because a thousand years before Jesus comes, you get an accurate description of what happens on Mount Calvary. Amazing. Look how it all happens. Look how it goes down. Look, look what takes place. Verse 12. They're surrounding the Savior. They're ready to destroy the Savior. Verse 13, it's like dogs snapping at him. Verse 16, he's pierced hands, pierced feet to the cross. I mind you, crucifixion has not even been invented yet. Verse 18, they divide his garments. They're gambling for his clothing. Look at verses 14 and 15. Poured out like water, all his bones out of joint, heart melted like wax, his strength dried up, his tongue sticks to his jaws, and can't you hear the Savior say, I thirst? God has brought him to the dust of death. Do you see the cross? Do you see the lingering death at the cross? And then see this final note of faith here, verses 19 to 21. This time it's not the Father's past. This is, so this is what John Piper calls future grace. He's looking for future grace. He prays to God to intervene, to rescue him, to take care of him. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Come, deliver me. He's looking to God to do something. He, he is suffering, right? So knowing that God is suffering and knowing that, uh, we're, that that's the case does not just mean passively suffering, going through pain. Suffering isn't good. Here, Jesus asked to be rescued from suffering that you can submit to the sovereign hand of God and at the same time ask to be delivered from trials that God has ordained. It's not inconsistent. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The crying for deliverance and the submitting to God can be they both take place. This is a faith that sustains and keeps, and this is a faith that cries out for deliverance. It doesn't hold back in the face of trial. And then look at verse 21. This is the pivot point. 
Save me from the mouth of the lion. Notice he says, you have rescued me. <laughs> Literally, you have answered me. So it's like, he's not even finished praying this prayer. And boom, the answer comes. <laughs> Save me from the, you rescued me. That, that's the sense here. Before the prayer's even finished, here's the answer. And it's at this point, the whole psalm radically is different here. Suffering ceases from here on out. This one clause in the second half of verse 21 is death giving way to resurrection. This uh, second half of verse 21 is the stone being rolled away and our Savior is alive. And so for the rest of the psalm, look at the risen Christ. Look at Christ as he worships. Verse 22, it not only tells us here, what, or, or Psalm 22 doesn't just tell us what it was like for Jesus on the cross, but here's the Savior's reply to the fact of the resurrection. Verse 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. So Jesus responds to the deliverance of God from the dust of death, how? With worship and praise in the midst of the congregation. The Septuagint says, in the midst of the great church, Jesus is worshiping. Jesus is saying, I'll be their song leader. I, I'm, I'm going to lead them. I'm their song leader. My voice is going to soar louder and clearer and brighter above all the swelling voices of this great assembly, for this assembly from every language and people and nation. They've, all, they've been redeemed by my blood and as their song leader. Notice Jesus invites us to come and join in with him, doesn't he? How to respond to the resurrection. Verse 23, you who fear him do what? Praise the Lord, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all the offspring of Israel. Why? He says, for, so here's why we ought to worship. Here's what should propel us to worship God. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but heard when he cried to him. So the reason to worship is that Christ has been risen, has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen. He's alive. He cried to the Lord. The Lord hears his cries and raises his son on the third day. The Father heard his cries. The Father delivers him. We are called to worship. I know at the beginning of our services we have a call to worship. Friends, we are all called to worship because the tomb is empty. That's the reason we worship. The, the, the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. It's because Jesus lives. We are called to worship. We praise the Lord. We can sing like we sang today. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Why does death have no victory? I think of Tweety passing away. Why has death got no victory? Because Christ is alive. 
He's defeated the grave. Jesus has been raised. He's risen. That's why it, it, it will not be victorious. That's why death is not the final answer. It's because Christ has been raised. He has shattered the bonds of death for all who believe. So through our tears and through our mourning and through our grief, we can say with Job, the Lord gives the Lord takes away. Yes, we can say that, but we, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we say the last part, blessed be the name of the Lord. And friends, one day soon, death having already been defeated, one day soon when the Savior who rose from the dead comes back to take us home, death will completely be undone. And so great will be the congregation on that day. Look how, look how great it's going to be. Verse 26, the poor and the afflicted will be there. Verse 29, the rich and the prosperous will be there. Verse 27, it'll go to the very ends of the world. And they shall remember and they will turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations, they shall worship before you. Rich, poor. Jew, Gentile, every believer from every background brought into this great congregation through faith in Jesus to praise him because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Look at verses 30 and 31. Here's how this great congregation is going to be assembled. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Here's what happens. Cross, empty tomb. In that moment, a missionary movement is born and goes out to all the world. It's launched. That missionary movement is launched from the cross in the empty tomb, and it goes, it spans the globe, it spans all the years until a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they're going to assemble around the throne, and around the throne they're going to say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power and might. And, and what is it? What is it that, that draws these people into worship? What is it that causes us to forsake dead idols and to serve the living God? What is it that will bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? What is it that will do this and form an a congregation a great church for all eternity. What's the content of the message? Verse 31. He has done it. <laughs> he has done it. He has. Or as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. That is the message that draws all these in. It's finished. It's done. God has done it. Our debt has been paid for. Our sin has been paid for. Our guilt has been atoned for. There is nothing else to do but bow down in repentance and faith and then rise up in worship and adoration to, to God because Christ is alive. He died, so there's pardon, there's mercy, there's cleansing for my sin because he died. He lives. 
Now, not even death can destroy our hope or silence our praise. So today, you're going to go home, you're going to spend time with family, friends, you're going to enjoy that, you're going to have a joyful day, I hope you do, I hope you really love it. But some of you are going to go home, and you're hurting, and you've got pains in your heart that nobody else knows about, and you're going to go home, and just quietly, and you're, even though you smile, deep down, there's something not right. Psalm 22 tells us to take our eyes and put them somewhere else. Not on ourselves, not on earthly blessings, not on friends, not on family, not on pain or present pain. Psalm 22 directs us, our gaze, to Jesus, who died and rose again and reigns. He died. So our tears, our tears are perfectly understandable because he's been there. He knows. He lives. Our joys have their deepest roots in him, and our circumstances can't even touch or do away with our joys because they are in him, because he lives. There is forgiveness for you because he lives. There is comfort in sorrow for you because he lives. There's hope tomorrow. Why? Because that tomb is empty. Christ Jesus is alive. He has done it. He has done it. Praise the Lord. It is finished. And it is my privilege as a minister of the gospel to say it is done. He has done it. You can't do it. I can't do it. He has done it. Our Savior has made that full payment, the full atonement, and now he lives and reigns and is coming back to take us to be with him where he is. So today, fill your vision with Christ. Get a fresh sight of him, a fresh view of him, because here is comfort for your hurting heart, and here is joy for your soul. He has done it. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are marvelous. You have done it. You have loved us, though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and sent your own Son to deliver us, to save us. You raised Christ on the third day, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, Christ was raised, testifying to all that there is a day of judgment. So, Lord, I pray for those that are not Christians in this room today. May they look to Christ. May they know that day of coming is coming, that they will be judged before your throne. And they know that because Christ has been raised. And may they repent. Lord, for those that don't even have time to think of Christ today, convict them of their own sin, even as their mind wanders. Lord, you have done it. You have raised them. As my brother had the call to worship this morning. We have been born again to a living hope through 
the resurrection from the dead of Jesus. You've caused us to be born. Lord, it's not of us. It's gloriously of you. You have done it. And let the saints praise you. And let the nations come. Let those who are hurting and afflicted come. Let those who are rich and prosperous come. Let people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come and worship because of what you have done. Hallelujah. Christ is alive.